It's like, I'm not, well, I don't even know why I'm here now. It's kind of, how do you follow that? That's great stuff. Um, for those of you who do worship regularly, uh, you may or may not know, Becky and I were gone for a couple of Sundays. We were on a little bit of a vacation. Um, whenever we go away on vacation, uh, we always come home and say the same thing. It's great to be on vacation, but there's no place like home. Um, and I would say that about Sunday mornings as well. Um, it's great to worship in other places, but there's no place like home. And it's good to be home this morning to worship with you. We've been on this um, journey together, following Jesus um, and, and stopping where he stops and um, listening to the, the conversations he has with people along the way and noticing that Jesus never has a conversation or an encounter with somebody that doesn't radically transform their life or change. And we're going to continue in that vein today with a story uh, about a man named Jairus um, who actually came looking for Jesus. It comes from uh, Mark chapter 5. And uh, I'm going to read this story for you if you want to follow along on the screen. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying Please come and, and put your hands on her so that, so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. While Jesus was still speaking. Now, there's a little interlude between Jesus leaving and this scene in the story where Jesus gets delayed and there's some other stuff that goes on. We'll catch up with that later. But while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So, we're familiar with this phrase, right? That desperate times require desperate measures. It's true of um, a neighbor of ours named Don who... uh, had a very successful career and then uh, retired and uh, lived in our subdivision there. You know, it's nothing ostentatious, but a nice place to live. He and his wife both drove luxury cars. They enjoyed the fruits of his labor and retirement. They took a lot of vacations, and once a year they went to Europe to visit uh, her family who were still there. Um, They walked their dogs every morning. She spent a lot of time in their garden. They loved Christmas, so much so that they hired uh, people to come and hang lights in their yard and on their townhouse, and it was always the most beautiful house on the block, so the rest of us didn't bother. Um, You know, hey, they're all about Christmas. We'll just go to their place, you know. Um, And uh, 
they were just great people, but then everything turned sideways when uh, Christina got a diagnosis of cancer. And, and she was told that she only had months to live. Um, but Christina was a fighter, Don said, and, and so was he, and they were going to fight this thing together. And so they tried every possible cure known to mankind, every treatment that was available, including even going to Mexico on several occasions for treatments that were not available in this country. And Christina didn't die in months. But two years after she was diagnosed, she did pass away and saw Don in the neighborhood after that. And um, he said, well, I'm, I'm moving. I said, well, that's too bad. I'm, I'm sorry you're moving. He goes, yeah, I can't afford to live here anymore. We spent every dime we had on treatments for Christina and so I have to move in with my children and my grandchildren in their home in the south suburbs. You see, desperate times require desperate measures. If your spouse is going through something as difficult as that kind of illness, Don and others of us would spend every dime we have with the hopes that there would be some kind of cure. I mean, it happens in other avenues of life as well. I mean, if you... If you uh, are in a job that is so demanding that you hardly ever spend any time at home and when you do come home they wish you wouldn't come home because you're so tense and anxious and filled with stress you may have to leave that job because it's not the healthiest thing for you or your family or maybe you do lose a job and your income level has shrunk significantly and you're not sure how much longer you can live on what you do have put aside and your kids who are in college might not be able to go back Desperate times sometimes require desperate measures. And who of us, who of us wouldn't be like Jairus, right? If you have a child who is ill, who is fighting some kind of illness, who of us wouldn't spend every dime we had, compromise our values, turn our backs on our standards sometimes to, to see if something, something, someone could help our child? Every parent in the room would do that. And that's exactly what Jairus did. And we don't know a whole lot about Jairus, just... One phrase in some ways, he was the leader of the synagogue. But that tells us a lot about him. You know, the synagogue was the, uh, was the center of not only religious life in every town, but also the center of all education, also the center of, um, uh, of social life. It was the center of political life. And so all wrapped up into one when you hear the phrase, he was a leader of the synagogue, he was a religious leader, he was the best professor in town, he was a leader of the educational system, uh, he was a leader of the Chamber of Commerce, and he was also you know, the leader of the political system. He, he was a leader, he was highly revered, he was necessary in town. Jairus was a big shot. And everybody knew Jairus, and everybody respected Jairus, and some probably even revered Jairus. And they all knew about his daughter's illness, no doubt. But do you understand how desperate Jairus was to go to this man named Jesus to seek a healing? He was a synagogue leader. Who, who were the people who eventually put Jesus on the cross? Oh, weren't they the synagogue leaders? Weren't they the leaders of the Jews? 
this newfound rabbi in town, this miracle worker who was attracting all sorts of crowds and everybody was flocking toward him and the establishment didn't really like it and, and Jairus was certainly part of the establishment and he had to compromise, he had to compromise his values, some of his standards and things that he believed in to go and ask Jesus if he could help. But desperate times require desperate measures and so you would do what Jairus would do. His daughter had that life-threatening illness. He'd try anything. And so he would even go and hang out with Jesus. It would be a little bit like if, uh, if these two people went on vacation together. Uh, those two guys. You know, John Boehner and Barack Obama. You know, we're so desperate, we'll go together. Or how about these two? Maybe these two could get along together this week. And, you know. I mean, Megyn Kelly's on vacation. Maybe Donald Trump was with her. I don't know. But desperate times do require desperate measures, don't they? Despite being enemies, Jairus went to Jesus, pleading with them to help. And Jesus went with Jairus. Now, they, they get delayed along the way, the passage that we skipped, because there were such a huge crowd of people pressing on Jesus to be healed, he couldn't even keep everything straight. Uh, this is the story where the woman reaches out and touches his garment and she's healed of a long time um, blood issue kind of illness thing that she had uh, that we don't really know exactly what it was but, but she was healed and he engaged in conversation and so he got delayed along the way and while he got delayed upon the way Jairus' daughter did die your daughter is dead they said why bother to teach her anymore and that makes all the logical sense in the world, right? When someone dies, you don't keep taking them for treatments. When someone is dead, it's final. It's over. You give up. You move on now. Jairus was, had, all, had all sorts of hopes that his daughter could be healed. But now that she had died, he wasn't planning for a healing. He had to plan a funeral. Life had changed. At least that was from the human perspective, but Jesus had a little different perspective. Jesus paid no attention to what they said. That's an amazing statement. That says more about Jesus than we oftentimes think. Jesus paid no attention to the common line of thinking. Jesus paid no attention to what made logical sense. Jesus paid no attention to what the whole crowd said. He went against everyone because he had a different perspective than anybody else who was there. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just, just believe. I mean, I read that again and again. I've read the story, I don't know how many hundreds of times. And every time I read it, I say the same thing when I get to that spot, right? You've just been told your child has died. Oh, don't, don't worry about that. No, don't be afraid. Just, just believe. I mean, it sounds so simple and so easy. But what Jesus is offering here is a whole different perspective than anybody else would have. Don't limit your possibilities, Jesus is saying, to what can be seen. Don't listen to only what people are saying or what you can read. Don't be controlled by only the logical. Believe in me because there's more to life always than meets the eye. There's things that you cannot see. In other words, Jesus was saying, you know, trust me in this thing. Trust me in this thing. And isn't that the definition of faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1. 
Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It, it defies logic. I mean, we read that and we say that and we want to trust that. But to be honest, it's hard to embrace the unseen. It's hard to attach ourselves to things that defy logic. If someone says your child is dead, it's hard not to be afraid and just believe. There's a dispute about exactly what this place was. It was either a cellar in Cologne, Germany, a cellar where Jews hid from the Nazis, or it was, in some other people's accounts, a concentration camp. Either way, it was a place where Jews hid during World War II for either fear of dying or being held until they would be exterminated. It doesn't make any difference why the Jews were there. It was their prison. And scratched onto the walls of that prison with either a sharp stone or a piece of glass or whatever were these words. I believe in the sun, even though it doesn't shine. I believe in love, even when it isn't shown. I believe in God even when he doesn't speak. You see, it's the belief, it's the faith, it's being sure of what we hope for and certain, right, of what we cannot see. There's more than meets the eye in life. Jesus was asking Jairus to make a choice, to live by the facts or to live by faith. When faced with insurmountable odds, We have to make those same kind of choices. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly was taking place, and Jesus went in and said to them, Why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. I mean, really? I mean, isn't that's an obvious. Why all the commotion and wailing? The girl died. (laughs) The girl died. She's not living. That's why there's all the commotion and wailing. What's the matter with this guy? And Jesus' only answer is to offer another perspective again. So there's the human perspective on what can see and what is obvious and what makes logical sense. And there is the God perspective, which is unseen and completely different. We already went through that once in Jairus even going. And now the girl has died. People are having a natural reaction of grief. And Jesus said, well... She's not really dead. She's just asleep. And he wasn't playing word games. She might have been dead, but she wasn't dead permanently. He knew what he was going to do. She she isn't dead. She's only sleeping. And the response of the people in the room was to laugh at him. I get it. I'd probably do the same thing, right? She's been dead for what? Several hours? She's lying there dead. I've seen it. There's no pulse. People have checked it. They're already making funeral preparations. All he says is she's not dead. She's asleep. Yeah, right. They laughed. They laughed at him. They laughed at his God perspective. They laughed at the way he saw things. Jesus wasn't baiting them or asking a rhetorical question. He was simply trying to say, look, there's a different way to see life and death. From God's point of view... Death is not permanent. 
It's not the end. And this is really hard for us to grasp because we lose people that we really care about and love. Our parents, friends, neighbors, sometimes children, sometimes spouses, we lose them to death. And we are aching with grief and sorrow because of it. And it's really hard for us to move to the next level, which is theologically accurate. It's the unseen part. Dying to this life is simply a stage that we go through to get to the next life. And if we believe what the scriptures say about us being aliens in this world, and we use this phrase, don't we? They're finally going home. They're finally going home. She was finally going home to her home. And Jesus is saying, you know, there's a different way to look at death than the way we always look at it. He wasn't saying you shouldn't grieve. He wasn't saying you shouldn't feel sorrowful. He wasn't saying we shouldn't do that. He was just saying there's another way to look at all of this. I'm going to give it a different perspective. This week in my reflections I wrote about... um, about sometimes when you, when you step back from something or get a little bit of a distance, you see, you see a, whole different, a whole different view of things. And that's what Jesus is suggesting here. Let's step back a second and, and start to reflect theologically on what's going on here instead of just our own emotional situation. When you walk down the sidewalks of the city of Chicago, you see the front of the buildings. If you go out on Lake Michigan, you see a skyline that looks completely different. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. Especially Wrigley Field. Or Soldier Field. Or that telephone company down on the south side. Whatever that is. I forget what that is. You just get a whole different perspective when you step back and get a different view. And everything looks different. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's another way to look at this. But they laughed at him. I mean, there's always going to be detractors to those of us who are people by fa- who live by faith. There are always going to be skeptics to transformation, even within the body of Christ. There are always going to be people who tell us to face the facts and deal with reality. There's always going to be people who will say, and sometimes it's our own voice saying it into our own heads, it will never work, that's too far-fetched, we've tried it before and no one bought into it, they will never change. All of those voices that make all the sense in the world, but that's our perspective and not always God's perspective. People will laugh or share their skepticism or roll their eyes, and they'll follow the traditional path and the tried and true solutions But sometimes as people of faith, we're not called to listen to all of that. I mean, every leader that God chose was laughed at or derided. I mean, Noah, right? Noah, I want you to build this boat because there's going to be a flood. And it's got to be a big boat because you're going to put two animals of each kind in it. It's like a day like today. It's, I mean, there's not rain in the forecast for a long time. It's hot. And so he's got to build a... I mean, imagine in his backyard, he's building this boat. You think the neighbors ever laughed at him or asked what they were doing? I mean, my neighbors all think I'm nuts. What about Moses? Moses, who, who was a slave, who was in exile for 40 years. Moses and all these people. And he, Moses is going to go before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to let the people of Israel go because Moses says, let my people go. Are you kidding me? None of the people who were soldiers on the scene when Goliath was taunting the Israelites thought that this little kid with a slingshot had a chance against Goliath. 
and nobody and nobody believed that Jesus, well, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Because the Messiah wasn't supposed to look like that. He wasn't supposed to talk like that. He wasn't supposed to end up dead on a cross. He wasn't supposed to be buried in a tomb. People who believe in that, they laughed at. There are always going to be detractors and naysayers to people of faith. And we have to make a choice. Are we going to let them discourage us or are we going to move on? Like Jairus, as a person of faith, some of you have heard of um, National Community Church in Washington, D.C. And the guy started this church several years ago, a guy named Mark Batterson. They started in a school, um, and, and he, he, he does tell the story of how the first service they had, three people showed up, his wife and his two children. He does say it was the, it was the day of the, of the biggest snowstorm ever in D.C., and, and everything was closed, but, you know, didn't bode much for the future. But um, Then the school that they used, when they had 25 members, the school that they used was condemned. <laughs> Everybody out, no more church, and so now you're looking for another place to have church, and, and they end up um, having church in a theater that's in Union Station in, in Washington, D.C., and... This becomes their church plant. and You know, it's kind of an odd place for a church. It's in a movie theater. It's in a train station. It's like, who does that? How's that going? That's not church. It's not church. And the church begins to grow. and God begins to bless it. And all the naysayers and the people who laugh at him start to take notice. And then there's an article in the Washington newspapers about this church that's growing and it tripled in size after the article showed up. It was like creative. It wasn't the way people thought about church. Maybe this is something we should try. It's very different. I think they have seven or eight sites in seven or eight different theaters by seven or eight different train stations in Washington, D.C. these days. After everybody said, it's not going to work, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and people laughed at him. And, and he, I mean, you know, getting your building condemned is kind of a sign from who? We all have to make choices to listen to logic, to pay attention to the detractors, to go by the facts, to back off because people life, laugh, or to forge forward in faith like Jairus. I mean, here was a man who was desperate. He'd try anything because his daughter was dying. He took the risk of going to the hated and despised Jesus, and Jesus did go with him. Now, Think about this. This, one, this story's got a million things. I got 20 more sermons, but I only got five more minutes. Think about this. Does this make logical sense to you? That Jesus left a crowd of people. Let's, let's say it's as big as there are numbers of people in this room. That, a crowd of people. So many people that he couldn't get through. He didn't even know who touched the hem of his garment. He left that crowd of people to go heal one guy's daughter. Now, how would you feel if you were in that crowd? Hold it. I wanted a healing. How? What? Hello? Does that seem fair to you? Makes no logical sense to me. I can't explain that. And why did Jesus choose to raise from the dead a 12-year-old girl? I mean, why, for instance, why didn't he choose to raise from the dead John the Baptist? He might have been a little more helpful in his mission. 
Why, why this 12-year-old girl? You know the answer to that? There isn't any. Jesus doesn't answer those questions. Those are our questions. You know, we want everything to turn out the way it turned out for Jairus. We, you know, we have people who are sick and people that we pray for and people that we care about. And we want a healing like Jairus got a healing for his 12-year-old daughter. And we don't get it when it doesn't happen. But it happens less often in the scripture than it does happen. We pray, we trust, we have faith, our loved ones dies, diseases progress, we weep. I mean, the only thing you can kind of say is that, you know, if God intervened and transformed in every situation that we prayed about, then there'd be no need for faith, right? If the answer was always yes, he'd be like a genie in a bottle, just giving us what we asked for. But what this story does do for me anyway is it tells me about the fact that when life gets difficult, when I or someone I care about is facing an illness or a downturn in my business or or I'm afraid because I'm starting college for the first time. I don't want to tell anybody I'm afraid because it kind of sounds like I'm a little kid. I want to be excited and it's so energetic and I can't wait to get there. But I'm, you know, if you just scrape below the surface a little bit, I'm kind of afraid. How's it going to go? Am I going to make it? Well, Rev made it. Anybody can make it. So, you know, how hard can it be? When life gets difficult, Christ is always there. There's always a perspective of faith. There's always someone we can rely on. There's always the power of the Holy Spirit. There's always a view that's different than ours. And I think the best perspective offered on all of this comes from three guys who lived hundreds of years before Jairus and Jesus even met each other. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Israelites in the service of Persian king, and they had failed to be obedient, so they were going to be thrown into a furnace. You know the story, right, about these three guys being thrown into a furnace. And you know what they said? If we are thrown into the blazing service, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. God is able, and he'll do it. But even if he doesn't do it, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Even if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have died in the fiery furnace, they still knew their God was faithful and that wasn't the end, but just a new beginning. When life gets difficult and we're not sure what to do and everything that makes logical sense defies us, there's always Jesus Christ who transformed the life of Jairus and the world. Let us pray together. Life is hard. And faith is weak. And sometimes, Lord, we, we would be honest to say to you that um, there are times where these stories frustrate us more than comfort us. Because it doesn't always turn out for us the way it turned out for Jairus. But it doesn't mean that you're not there. 
It doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean that you won't give us strength for the next day. And maybe that's what your gift is to us. And so whatever it is, help us to see your way and not our way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and um, close our worship celebrating the power of Jesus Christ.